Today's scripture reading is found in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Though he knew only the bapt- of the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray once more. Father, as has already been expressed this morning, we are grateful for this day, thankful that we can gather together on this first Sunday, this first Lord's Day of this new year, and worship you, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are grateful that we can gather as your people to do that. Father, we're thankful for your word, and I do pray now as we open it up that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your magnificent word, your magnificent communication to us. We thank you that you have spoken so clearly to us. We thank you that you have given us the words of eternal life. We thank you so much that the word, Christ Jesus, is not only living in the pages of this book that we have before us, but that he is alive now, that he has risen from the dead. And because of that, we can plant our very lives on the foundation that is Christ Jesus. And we thank you for the hope that that gives us for this new year that faces us. And we do pray, Father, that you would bless us in this new year and help us to be faithful to what you call us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. Gardens are all around us. Have you ever thought about that? Many of you spend a great deal of time in gardens, whether your own or those that are cultivated by others. The Bible is filled with stories of gardens, too, As a matter of fact, uh, the Bible begins and ends with two pictures of gardens. Jesus himself spends time in a garden before going to the cross. Gardens are all around us. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians mentions another garden. True, he, he doesn't call it a garden, but he describes what is plainly a garden, or at least what happens in a garden. And I believe that crucial passage in 1 Corinthians finds its backstory in the Acts passage that we're looking at today, Acts chapter 18. I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 18. It's in this passage that Luke records the conclusion of Paul's second missionary journey. It's also in this passage that we meet a man named Apollos. According to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, Apollos is a a prominent figure in the early church. But before the Corinthian church meets Apollos and, and before Paul writes to the Corinthian church about Apollos... Apollos gets discipled by Aquila and Priscilla in the passage that we're looking at this morning. Acts chapter 18, verses 18 to 28, is unique in that the first half of it deals with Paul and the conclusion of the second missionary journey, while the second half gives us insight into this unique moment in the life of the early church where two of Paul's apprentices, Aquila and Priscilla, They use all that he has taught them to pour into the life of this man named Apollos. At first glance, we we could assume that the passage is two separate chunks, but one word tips us off that the sections are one unit and that we should look at them together. So We'll see a little bit more of that in a few minutes. Both the first and second halves of this passage join together to show us what it looks like to establish a thriving gospel community where lives are being impacted by and for Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. I believe what happens in the passage that we're looking at today is so important that you do not have 1 Corinthians 3.6 without it. So in keeping with Paul's gardening metaphor, I see where we can apply his thinking to our passage that we're looking at this morning. So I've entitled today's sermon, How to Establish a Gospel Garden. And I've done that because of the fruit of 1 Corinthians 3.6. 3.6, I, I believe it begins in the fertile soil of the passage that we're looking at today. And I, I believe it can be argued that if there is no Acts 18, verses 18 to 28, there is no 1 Corinthians 3.6. So if you're taking notes this morning, I have four points, really four steps, because they all have to do with establishing a garden where the gospel grows. The first step has to do with where you're going to plant the gospel garden. Here it is. Step number one, pick the plot. Pick the plot. Look at verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centre because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. 
When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So what becomes evident in these first six verses of this passage is that Paul is establishing gospel gardens all over the place. He's picked a plot in Corinth that will be seen as producing fruit, and before returning to his sending church in Antioch, Paul will stop in Ephesus, and he will pick another plot and plant another gospel garden there. Paul would leave Aquila and Priscilla at Ephesus, and we know from other passages that their gospel ministry would be used of the Lord in mighty ways. So when we're thinking about where to plant a vegetable garden or a flower garden, location is very important. At least that's what Google says. Picking a plot is incredibly important to the success excuse me, of the garden. We should consider things such as how much sunlight it receives, whether it has good drainage and air circulation, if the location is level with loose rich soil. Lastly, is there a source for watering? Right? Anybody who's ever planted a garden knows these things are critical to the life of a garden. Is location, when planting a gospel garden or planning to establish a gospel garden, is location important? What determines where the good news of the Lord Jesus will thrive? As we've seen the church growing all throughout Acts, and as we see now that Paul is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, establishing churches in the cities that he visits, we remember Jesus' words that his church would prevail and that nothing could overcome it. Speaking directly to Peter in Matthew 16, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Friends, deciding where to establish a garden is always important, but what we come to understand from Jesus' resurrection from the dead is that, listen, location is not a hindrance or obstacle for him. When planting a vegetable garden, we are limited as to where we can put it. Not true of the church and not true of the gospel. There are no earthly limitations as to where the gospel will flourish. Psalm 24.1 tells us, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. As Abraham Kuyper so famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. This means whether the gospel is shared in Ephesus, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, or in the United Arab Emirates, it will produce fruit. What we will learn as we move throughout the passage in Acts is that laboring in gospel ministry produces fruit, not because of what we bring to the table, but because of the Holy Spirit who's at work in and through us, God's people. So as you read Paul's letter to the 
cities where he is establishing gospel gardens, all of his pastoral letters. You come to understand these cities and these churches are not without challenges, quite the opposite. He is, he's writing to them as a response to the issues that they were working through. But in every correspondence, he is revealing to them that the gospel is greater than any challenges that they are facing. The good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, is the answer to the challenges that we are facing. It's the answer to our sin. It is what we need to transform our lives, our churches, and our cities, where the gospel has been planted and and where it is taking root. As Christians, we know this to be true, but even we can be lulled into thinking at times that change and, and transformation happens through means other than Jesus. That's certainly true for people of the world who have not beheld the beauty of the good news of Jesus. Just this past week, Michelle Tandler, a resident of San Francisco, took to Twitter, the the online platform, to, to vent over her dismay with the homeless crisis in her city. She wrote about how she was stumped because San Francisco is one of the most progressive cities in the world with a progressive government to boot and with billions of dollars to throw at issues like homelessness cannot solve the problem. This lady was crying out for a solution. She was pleading with her tens of thousands of Twitter followers to listen to her and join this cause to help bring an end to this humanitarian crisis. So friends, if a progressive city like San Francisco with a progressive government and progressive policies along with billions of dollars cannot solve that problem like homelessness and the problems that our biggest cities face, whatever can. I wonder if Ms. Tandler has considered Jesus. I wonder if Ms. Tandler and many like her have considered the good news of Jesus and its transforming power. How different would San Francisco or Atlanta or New York or fill in the blank, how different would these cities look if the gospel of Jesus Christ were welcome there? Picking the plot is the first step of establishing a gospel garden. And and again, because the earth is the Lord's, we realize we can and should establish gospel gardens all over it. And this is one reason why we value our missionary relationships that we have with gospel workers all over the world. They've been sent to specific locations where they are planting and establishing gospel gardens. They are in specific locales where they are being used of the Lord to share the good news of Jesus and to make disciples So if you're new to Trinity and you want to learn more about the gospel partnerships we have with missionaries all over the world, please see us, any one of us on staff, and we'll be happy to connect you with one of our missions committee members who could tell you more about our partnerships. But please be praying for our missionaries this year and the fruit that they will produce in the gardens that they are planting and, and cultivating. Before we move on to the second half of the passage and the second step of establishing a gospel garden, I want to comment on a couple of things that we see in verses 18 to 23. The first is with respect to the mention of Paul having his hair cut off 
on his way from Corinth to Ephesus. Luke tells us Paul had his hair cut off because of a vow that he had taken. Was this a Nazarite vow, as we see mentioned in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 21, or some other kind of vow? Commentators are divided on this, so even though we can't know for sure what kind of vow this was, why Paul took it, or when he took it, we can conclude a couple of things. Very simply, these two things. Paul made a vow to the Lord, and he kept it, right? We can be assured this wasn't some kind of legalistic, works-based act that Paul was involved in. Of all people, if there's anyone that would not have been caught in a trap of making a vow before the Lord to earn right standing with him, it would have been Paul. For some reason, though, Paul made a vow before the Lord, and because of his love for the Lord, he kept it. Paul wanted to live a disciplined life before the Lord, and this instance of of him making and keeping a vow to the Lord is one way that he does that. So why does Luke include this detail in this passage? While we can't know for sure, by including it, Luke shows us how seriously devoted Paul was in his service to the Lord. If there's a man leading the charge on establishing gospel gardens, Paul was the one. Yet, he was not greater than his master. He was humbly devoted to the Lord. The second thing of interest that we see in verses 18 to 23 is Paul's response to the Jews in the synagogue who wanted him to spend more time with them. Shockingly, he declined their invitation. But in verse 21, we read this, But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. Paul, who has been kicked out of synagogue after synagogue and, and, and hurt and, and thrown out of cities, you know, for once he's invited to stay and he declines. It's just it's mind-boggling. What is going on here? Right on the heels of Paul having his hair cut, after keeping his vow to the Lord, he makes a promise to the Jews in Ephesus. Whether they knew it or not, Paul was a man who would keep his word. So for him to say that he would come back if God willed it, it meant that he would come back if at all possible. Friends, because we as Christians, like Paul, are not under the Mosaic law, taking and keeping vows is not something that we regularly practice, right? We probably don't think much about it at all. However, a passage like this can remind us to be like Paul in guarding our word. Whether to God or a grandchild or anywhere in between, let us be true to our word. Luke gives us a couple of examples in the life of Paul back to back here in Acts 18. And where did Paul learn the importance of keeping his word? But from none other than the Lord himself. And that's why we can rest assured that what Jesus has promised, he will fulfill. As we get ready to launch into a new year, let's consider how precious our word is. As followers of the Lord Jesus, our word should be our bond. Like Christ and his servant Paul, let us live by example for those around us and guard the promises that we make.
This is a small point, but one that could be a great witness for Christ in this new year. Picking the plot is important, but when it comes to establishing a gospel garden, we learn that because the earth is the Lord's, we can do this work wherever we are. Picking the plot is the first step. The second step is this, prepare for planting. Prepare for planting. Look at verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with the great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. I mentioned a, a few minutes ago that one word tips us off to the fact that verses 18 to 28 belong together. And we see that word here in verse 24. Luke connects these two seemingly disconnected chunks of Scripture with one simple word. You see it there? Meanwhile. In other words, while, while Paul is wrapping up the second missionary journey and beginning his third venture, the action in verses 24 to 28 is taking place. So because there's so much taking place in this passage, let me take just a, a brief moment to give us a, a, an overview of these verses. Verses 18 to 23, again, you have Paul along with Aquila and Priscilla traveling from Corinth to Ephesus. Paul leaves Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. Paul departs Ephesus, heads back to Jerusalem, ultimately back to his sending church in Antioch before launching off on yet another missionary journey, the third journey. It's while Paul is traveling that Apollos shows up in Ephesus where he meets Priscilla and Aquila. We learn a great deal about this man, Apollos, from a, a very brief description given by Luke. We, we know Apollos was a Jew who had come to Ephesus from Alexandria, Egypt. We know he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. We know he had submitted himself to instruction that taught him the way of the Lord, and he was a gifted preacher who spoke with great fervor. And the last thing that we see is that he taught about Jesus accurately. Apollos, as best as he could, had, had done what was necessary to prepare himself for the work of the Lord. He had invested much of his time in getting ready to devote himself to the Lord's service. Apollos had prepared for planting. Apollos was from Alexandria, which was a city of learning, boasting one of the most significant libraries of the ancient world. The city of Alexandria was synonymous with knowledge. And while knowledge in general can be a good thing, we're told that Apollos was especially knowledgeable of the Scriptures. Some of our translations say he was a learned man. Others say that he was an eloquent man. Either way, he was characterized by his speech because he spoke with precision and force. But what did Luke mean by saying Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord? What exactly did Apollos know about Jesus? We know Apollos knew a great deal about Jesus because Luke tells us he taught about Jesus accurately. As we've seen in other places in Acts with other characters, Apollos appears to be a God-fearer, but was 
He's saved. Was Apollos saved? It's at this point in Luke's narrative that we begin to have more questions than answers about Apollos. Scholars differ on their understanding of Luke's assessment of Apollos, and there are various takes on some of the wording in this section. The main question is this, was Apollos a man with a ton of head knowledge of the Lord and yet a man who was unsaved? The reason there's debate here is the last phrase in verse 25, which says this, though he only knew the baptism of John. So is Luke telling us all of Apollos' knowledge was in vain because he was unsaved, or was he indicating that even though Apollos had been trained, he still had more to learn? In other words, had his head been affected by the knowledge of the Lord and his heart left unaffected by the good news of Jesus? What did Luke mean by saying that Apollos knew only the baptism of John? One commentator explains it this way. He says this. He says, his doctrine regarding Jesus was accurate but deficient. Probably, this means Apollos, he says, did not know about the Holy Spirit's baptism. The commentator continues, John's baptism symbolized cleansing by God because of repentance toward God. But Christian baptism pictures union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection by means of spirit baptism. So here's what I think is is happening in this picture of Apollos. I I believe Apollos was a student of the Old Testament scriptures. That's plain to us. I believe that He had believed, according to John the Baptist's testimony, Jesus was the Messiah who had come to fulfill the law and die an atoning death for the sin of those who would believe on him. But I believe that's where Apollos' knowledge stopped. It seems as though Apollos had not heard about Jesus' resurrection and ascension and sending of the Holy Spirit. He had prepared as much as he could for planting, but he was in need of more preparation. And friends, that's where the community of believers comes in to aid him. Look at verse 26. He, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Verse 26 gives us our third step for establishing a gospel Garden. We've seen the importance of picking the plot and preparing for planting, but verse 26 shows us the need to mind the fence. Mind the fence. That, that is our third step. Fences can be incredibly helpful when thinking about a garden because it can keep out unwanted things that can harm your vegetables or your flowers. Fences give us borders around our growing area and can provide optimal growing conditions. How does a a fence factor into this scene where Apollos is approached by Priscilla and Aquila? As we just saw at the end of verse 25, there was a, a deficiency in Apollos' understanding of the gospel. We can't know for certain whether Apollos was saved through verse 25. Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord and taught accurately about Jesus to a point, but Aquila and Priscilla, after hearing Apollos teach, they they picked up on the fact that something was a little off. 
Priscilla and Aquila were minding the fence. Though they had concerns about Apollos' understanding and teaching, they could have just shrugged their shoulders and thought, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. He'll, he'll figure it out later. Or because of his popularity and stature in and with the community, Aquila and Priscilla, they could have, out of fear of man and, and possible fear of rejection, just chalked it up to being too much of a gamble that Apollos might not even listen to them. But they didn't opt for either of those conclusions. Instead, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Having picked up on whatever insufficiency they detected, they didn't blast him in public. Instead, they they kindly and lovingly invited him to a private conversation where they shared with him what they had been taught by Paul. So what was that? Well, Luke only tells us it was the way of God more adequately. So while we can't know for sure, I believe it had to do with Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and sending of the Holy Spirit. It, it stands to reason that Apollos had not heard about, or at least completely understood, the events of Pentecost. So was Apollos saved and, and just a little squirrely on some secondary and unessential issues, or Was Apollos lost and in need of hearing the gospel? Either way, as difficult and uncomfortable as it was, Aquila and Priscilla, they took the time to pour into this gifted man. So there are a number of things to take away from this step of minding the fence. The first is that minding the fence is critical to a healthy gospel garden. Again, Aquila and Priscilla, they could have shrugged off this deficiency in Apollos' understanding, but they didn't. They realized it was important enough to address, and they addressed it with him. But as we said a minute ago, they did it discreetly. The point was not to embarrass Apollos or to make themselves look smart or more pious. The gospel was so important to Aquila and Priscilla that they realized they had to address this issue with Apollos, but they had to do it in a Christ-honoring way. God was glorified in how they took Apollos aside, and in helping Apollos, the church was strengthened. Some things are that important. Friends, the gospel is that important. Let us all lovingly help one another in striving to be faithful to the gospel. A phrase that was popular when I was in seminary was heresy hunter. Nobody wanted to be labeled a heresy hunter, especially by your seminary professor. It was somewhat used in jest, but the point was that as newly trained seminarians, the the tendency was to be on the lookout for any time someone made the slightest misstep in their explanation of a biblical truth. We don't want to be heresy hunters because we want to be gracious and understanding with one another. However, we do want to lovingly foster fidelity to the gospel. From all we can gather... Apollos was as receptive to the teaching 
as Aquila and Priscilla were humble in their giving of the correction. We'll talk about that a little more in a minute, but for now, a takeaway is that whether we're giving or receiving instruction in the gospel, we should do it with all humility. The last thing I'll point out here is that Apollos receives the correction from Aquila, yes, but also from Aquila's wife, Priscilla. While we here at Trinity understand the Scriptures to clearly teach that the role of pastor is reserved for men alone, as we see in 1 Timothy 2 and 3 and among other places, we see here in Acts 18 how vital women were in the life of the first days of the church. Christianity was blowing up all paradigms, even in its infancy. Notice how the leaders of the church taught that there were roles to be observed within the structure of the church. Again, they were minding the fence. Yet it was obvious that Christianity was serving to remove barriers that culture had unnecessarily placed on women. Paul and the other apostles were acknowledging women and rightfully assimilating them into the life of the church. They were even encouraged, as we see here in Acts 18, to aid in the discipleship of their fellow brothers in Christ. So let us thank God for the godly examples that we have in the women around us. From our grandmothers and mothers to our wives, from those in our adult Bible fellowship to those that we share a meal with through bread breakers or our small group, God has blessed us with amazing examples of godliness in the women that he has placed around us, and we are thankful to him for that. When you establish a gospel garden, you pick a plot, you prepare to plant, you mine the fence, and lastly, you plant, water, wait, and watch. Look at verse 27. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Here's a cool thing about the end of Acts 18. Even though we can't know for certain whether Apollos was saved through verse 25, we can know for certain that he was after verse 26. I said a few minutes ago that it appeared as though Apollos was receptive to the instruction, correction, that he received from Aquila and Priscilla. I believe it's safe to assume this because of what we read in verse 27. There came a time when Apollos determined that he wanted to go to Achaia, whose, whose capital city was Corinth. Had Apollos not been receptive to the correction in verse 26, it's understandable that Aquila and Priscilla would not have been in support of sending him to Corinth. But what we read is this, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. Apollos, with, with all of his training With all of his preparation and knowledge, was approached by two concerned friends in the gospel. 
he humbly received their correction and instruction, and the church gladly recognized him as someone who was ready to be sent out as a representative of the church in Ephesus, an ambassador for Christ Jesus. Notice the result. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. I'm comforted by how Luke chooses to conclude chapter 18. Apollos, with with all of his gifting, with all of his intellect and charisma, he leaned on nothing that he had to offer, but solely on what? The Word of God. Luke says, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Friends, the Word of God is all we need to plant and water our gospel gardens. That is so encouraging. At least it should be. It's it's not up to us in what we can offer. True, God has gifted us each uniquely, and He uses our gifts for His church. But whether the gospel bears fruit is not dependent on those gifts. God is the one who makes the garden grow. What we see throughout this passage is men and women faithfully, humbly, earnestly, devoutly doing the work of those who are used of God to establish gospel gardens. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. We've seen some incredible examples of godly servants and models of God's grace in Acts 18, verses 18 to 28. We've seen how the good news of Jesus can take root anywhere because the earth is the Lord's. Therefore, let us pick plots and do so with confidence, knowing that God is not limited to bear fruit in only certain locations. We've seen how we, like Apollos, should take our gospel preparation seriously. We should devote time to sharpening ourselves in the Scriptures and in the way of the Lord. And and what better time than now, at the outset of this new year, to begin doing that and commit to that. We've seen how critical it is to mind the fence and guard what we say about God and His Word, as well as to lovingly instruct and correct others when they err, and to humbly receive correction when a brother or sister comes to us. Lastly, we've seen how we should devote ourselves to planting and watering with the Word of God. As Paul told the Corinthians, it is God who makes His garden grow. So after we work, we wait, we watch, 
And we trust that He, God, will bring the increase. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this picture of faithfulness that You have shown us in the Scriptures. We thank You that You have sent before us workers that have modeled for us what faithfulness looks like in gospel ministry. We're grateful that the gospel does transform lives. When we hear the gospel, when we understand it, when we believe through the gospel that Christ Jesus has come to take our sin, when we believe that, we trust that you regenerate our hearts, you take our sin from us, make us new, and fit us for eternity with you. Father, help us to believe that. Help us to trust in that daily. Help us to never grow tired of hearing the gospel. Father, I pray that you would help us to take this message to this community around us, this this dying world around us. Father, that those in their sin can be made whole. They can be forgiven of their sin. But there is only one way, and that is through Christ Jesus. May we not try to fit and fashion other repairs or fixes to our broken lives, but may we humbly fall at the feet of Jesus and trust that He alone can save us from our sin. Father, as we get ready to observe the the table of Your Son and our Lord, as He commanded us to do, I I pray that this would be a, a sweet time of reflection, that we would remember what Christ has done on our behalf. I pray, Father, for those in this room who are not saved, that they would see it as as a stark reminder that they need Christ more than anything in the world. I pray today would be the day that they would fall on His mercies. We thank you for this table that we are about to observe. We thank you, more importantly, for your Son. It's in his name we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.